This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, Episode 17. It's just not important. I can find anything I need to know online. What I can't find is somebody to literally walk me through, somebody to, to show me what it physically looked like. So in my mind, the value of a coach is going to explode when the robotics really start to take over. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. I'm the host, NSCA Head Strength and Conditioning Coach, Scott Caulfield. Today, my guest is Andy Galpin, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Center for Sports Performance at Cal State Fullerton. Andy, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Excited because we are here at the NSCA's 40th anniversary of the National Conference. Um, You did a little talk yesterday. Pretty excited to be here. Yeah, this is probably my, I don't know, 10th, 12th, 13th or more consecutive time coming. So I started, uh, actually, a large reason of why I got into where I'm at now is because of the NSCA conference. Yeah. So I, c- I can tell that story, and I'll tell you the short version of it. But basically, after you know, when I was an undergrad, we didn't we weren't exposed to sports science at all. It was all clinical wellness or walking. And so when I graduated, I was like, I want a different field because it was very very boring to me. I played college football, and we lifted, of course, but we had no education or nothing like that. And I happened to find a guy, and he was like, you got to go to this thing called NSCA, and I went, and he introduced me to Avery Fagenbaum, Andy Fry, all these people, and I remember walking by posters and seeing Andy Fry had a poster on muscle biopsies and weightlifting and powerlifting. I think it was one of his high-intensity overtraining studies, and and I I remember just having about four or five of those complimentary beers and just berating him with questions. And before I realized it, he was like, hey, are you going to go to grad school? And I didn't know what a master's was. I was like, I think I kind of know, but I didn't. And he's like, well, I got a spot for you to come out. And so I eventually went out there and got my PhD. And so like the NSCA's, NACON specifically is, I don't know where I'd be without it. Yeah, that's very similar. I have a very similar story. When I first got involved, someone had basically said, well, if you if you want to train athletes, this is what you need to look into, the CSES yeah. thing. And that led me to go on the National Conference. And one of the first people I met, too, was Avery and a yeah. bunch of these other guys. Yeah, so yeah. Apparently, Avery was one of the main social uh, directors back then. Tough to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and then it was just kind of like the snowball effect. But um, yeah. so, you, you know, you, you mentioned it being so clinical back mm-hmm. then. And I think one of the things that you're well known for and one of the things that you pride yourself on is is making this science, right? Taking the scientific stuff and making it more digestible for coaches and trainers Mm -hmm. and and people to understand. Tell tell me a little bit like did you did you just see that disconnect and be like, man, somebody has to be able to hate to use the word, but bridge that gap. Like. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm given, I think tomorrow I'm given that career talk, which is kind of a way to build your, um, actually I think of you who maybe, yeah. uh, put me yeah, in to yeah. do it. So yeah. how to build your career in education and academia. Right. And a large part of that came from exactly what you mentioned. And it came from somebody who wasn't even my uh, actual advisor as a doctoral student, but he was around and his name is Dave Costell. Okay. If you look at any of your undergrad ex books, 
you probably see that they're written by this guy named Dave Constell, and he was one of the first people in America in the 60s and 70s to build the human performance lab. Now, he was, he was really uh, endurance running, jogging, kind of only swimming, cycling, but that's not what I took from him. What I took is, is, is he did so many even clinical studies, but his rule of thumb was for every single study I do, I'm going to do one article for the public magazine. Okay. So he did a lot for, at the time, Runner's World, yeah. and he did newspaper interviews. And I remember as I was coming up in academia, I was being looked down upon for, for thinking we should do that. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, well, what do you mean? Like, the guy who's you know, <laughs> Lifetime Achievement Award in this field kind of guy, yeah. that was his goal. <laughs> and so it always irritated me. And then I got especially irritated when some really cool studies came out recently that showed, on average... About seven people read every scientific article. Oh, wow. And then I remember thinking, like, do you know how many weekends I've, I've worked through? How many nights I've slept underneath my desk? And all these things to get these, these scientific papers out and no one's reading them? Yeah. What's the point? Like, am I just creating more noise? Yeah. Or am I actually causing any change? And the beauty of our field is that, in theory... A lot of the stuff I do in the lab, it should make a difference between how we're coaching and, and training and, and lifting, at least at some level. So if I'm not taking the time to then communicate it back to the practitioners in a way that they understand, right. uh, it's a real problem. That the I really, really hate it when the scientists say things like, well, my job is just to do the science. It's their job to read it. Right. Well, well, yeah, okay, come on. <laughs> Like, you can do that, and yeah. then you can continue to keep being irrelevant. Right, right. But you need to adjust and deliver to them in a message that they can deliver. And what I have found is if you do that, the coaches will then often go the extra mile to then read more on their own. They'll ask better questions, right. and they will do their part if you just give them a little bit of help yeah. from from your end. Yeah, I think that's a huge part because it definitely goes, it's a two-way street, right? It, yeah. It has to be. And I think that, uh, plus, like, the videos you've been doing, the 5 minute mm -hmm. is like, just such great things. Even for students, right, to make break yeah. it down simpler for them, for coaches, people who well, are busy. My whole goal with that, honestly, is we're okay right now in time, but we've only got a few more years or maybe, I don't know, 10 more years where information itself is no longer a commodity. Mm-hmm. It's just not important. I can find anything I need to know online. What I can't find is somebody to literally walk me through, somebody to, to show me what it physically looked like. So in my mind, the value of a coach is going to explode when the robotics really start to take over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I always wanted to be in a position where it'd say, okay, let's put this stuff up and you know what let's stop charging people for just the information yeah. and so all those videos i've created for my website they're all up there and what my goal is to do is honestly is take my entire undergraduate curriculum make it into short practitioner friendly videos and throw the whole thing up online for free cool. no subscription no paywall no membership fees because it, it's got to be quality stuff get it up there and then oh you want to actually learn how to do this stuff well, let's find somebody to intern with and actually learn it first in person because that's where the real true learning comes from. But yeah. let's take the information part of it and let's get it done quicker. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you, you mentioned like the career talk that you're doing today and kind of you talked about the quick, you know, path that you ended up going down. But yeah, where, where was the turning point? You know, you went into this master's program. Where was the turning point that you were like, 
okay, you know what, I'm going to do this PhD thing and I want to teach or, you know, or were you still kind of thinking? I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I've built two labs and uh, I'm tenured and I still don't know what I'm going to keep doing. I would say probably, uh, you know, what really made a difference for me was when I was a master's student and I, and I, again, I worked under Brian Schilling and Andy Fry and they were doing really cool research, but I noticed a gap in terms of their their ability in the lab, um, not, not their technical ability, but the things they could do. And I realized several other people in the more of a clinical setting that had more advanced skills there. And so I thought, man, if I could learn those advanced skills and I can still bring them back to training questions, yeah. because I saw no one's doing that. Like we know from a coaching perspective, three sets of 15 is very different than 15 sets of three. Right. But from the muscles perspective, that's 45 contractions either way. Yeah. How does it know to have two different adaptations? Well, I noticed like no one had the technical ability to answer these questions. Yeah. And also the practitioner savvy to realize that's a question in the first place. Yeah. So I think probably somewhere around then is when I noticed the turning board of saying, man, we could answer some really cool questions that, you know, the classic example here of the coaches being yeah. 30, dec 30 years ahead of, of our scientists. So. Yeah. That's the best I could give you. <laughs> no, I like it. That's great. And yeah, and so your other title is the director of the biochemistry and molecular ex-phys lab. Yeah. Uh, what what does that entail? It sounds like it's in really intense, scary to... Uh... Well, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, the funny part about that is, you know, I barely passed chemistry as an undergrad. <laughs> I didn't take OCHEM. I couldn't get through biochem. And here I am, I have a PhD in, in muscle biochemistry and I run this biochemistry and molecular phys lab and I struggled through as a master's student I struggled through as a doctoral student to get these things done I'm, I'm not particularly talented in those areas I still honestly personally identify more as a coach than anything else yeah. even though I don't coach as many athletes on the floor anymore right. but basically what that what we do in that lab is is we try to answer the same practitioner questions you know the three by 15 kind of stuff but we actually take muscle biopsies yeah. We take the muscle out and we isolate it one muscle fiber at a time. And then we've got a whole host of cool things we can do where we can identify things like fiber type. Yeah. That's probably what I've spent most of my career yeah. on. Yeah. Um, how big the fibers are. Uh, my friend, actually, I just threw this up on my social media yesterday. Found some really, really good evidence now that hyperplasia is, is very likely to be happening. Okay. And so this is what we're trying to identify. And it's funny because those of us in kind of the, the science end of the world, like we basically know what happens. Yeah. It's only been a problem of technology of being able to visualize it so we can yeah. show that it happens. So that's the type of stuff that gets me really excited is yeah. like, yeah, we know hyperplasia probably is happening in humans. We just got to figure out a way to show it in, in the lab. So yeah. I bring in really smart postdocs and stuff right. that they actually know yeah. how to do chemistry. Yeah. And, and do what's going to be our biggest takeaway from that that you guys are finding out as for the, you know, adaptation in the, in application in the real world yeah so i mean that's that's always the eternal challenge right uh we don't have a direct application of that yet but what this does get us to down the line is things like well potentially we can start to alter training so for example if you and i look at our, our muscles with an ultrasound and we are able to get the technology good enough to where we can identify how big and how many fibers you have we're not that far away Maybe then we can eventually identify what types of training induce hyperplasia versus single cell hypertrophy. Yeah. 
oh, okay, we've identified maybe, and I'm making this up, but yeah. maybe more high-volume stuff is better for hyperplasia. Okay. okay, then you who have less fibers maybe need to go through and spend more time in your development, maybe as a freshman at college, hitting more volume, but I don't need that volume. I need to actually do the opposite because I have the fibers and they just need to be trained. I mean, this is down the road, yeah. but we're never going to get there unless we start figuring out yeah. the basics now. Yeah. That's cool stuff, man. It's exciting. Yeah. Exciting. It's the real science stuff. Uh, yeah. And you guys have a weightlifting club. You've run weightlifting mm-hmm. meets for a long time. Yep. Um, did you, were you the one that started that? Yeah. You know? So I started that um, club when I got, when I first got to Fullerton because uh, we didn't have anything in our curriculum for weightlifting or powerlifting. Sure. But I always said, like, you're not going to say that you took a class from Andy Galpin and don't know the difference between powerlifting and weightlifting. Nice, nice. So I always brought it up and I had so many people afterwards be like, well, will you show me how to do a snatch? Will you show me how to do a clean jerk? Yeah. And it's funny because it was all females. Yeah. So I had these four or five girls, actually, one of them being Whitney Leva, yeah. who just took over as the California State Director yeah. and a bunch of other girls that are here. This was six years ago, I think. And they kept badgering me. So it's one day after class, I said, all right, and I brought some PVC pipe ups and I spent 45 minutes with them. And then you know how that goes. We yeah. do it next week. We do it yeah. next week. And then eventually after a few months, I was coaching them three days a week or something. And I was like, well, you know, we're just going to start a club and let's design it so that we develop coaches within it. Yeah. So the club is a bit different where probably 80 plus percent of our people have never, ever, ever done any weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. And maybe 80% of them have never even really lifted. So they come in, they were maybe high school cheerleaders, but probably not even athletes in high school. And we can break that that intimidation barrier down. And they start off learning basic movement patterns, squatting, pressing, hinging, these types of stuff. And by the time they finish as undergrads, they're usually now coaching. Nice. And then our grad students coach our competitive athletes. And so okay. they get hundreds of hours of coaching experience, which I can't give them in our curriculum. Sure. And they actually get to learn. to live. So it's been fantastic. And I think three years in a row we hosted, if not the biggest, one of the biggest non-national weightlifting meets uh, in the country. We're having 150 plus people per meet. So wow, that's it's been cool. great. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I think that's a great feel like that's a great model that we need to tell other uh programs about you know like yeah. look yeah if you can't do it in your curriculum here's an easy way to add in this practical coaching piece and we didn't have any space like we are completely we're in southern california yeah. so there's no space yeah. left and it's very expensive and so we didn't have anywhere to do this so we kept doing it all the pvc pipes and stuff and eventually we had so many people and I was able to go to my administrators with these numbers. Right. This is how many females. This is how many underserved. Yeah. And you know how this yeah, stuff yeah. plays, especially in Southern California. Yeah. So I got 50 kids that are trying to do this. And, and I had all these letters from them that said, you know, I've never felt like I was actually a part of Cal State Fullerton. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like all this right. stuff. Because they didn't. Like, yeah. you know, I go to class and then I leave. We're 90 plus percent commuters. Okay, yeah. So, and so they're like, now I'm staying on campus. Yeah. And then I forced them basically into giving me an old racquetball court. Okay, nice. Yeah. And we raised all of our own money. We yeah. charged $5 at the door kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And and now we've got eight platforms, probably 20 barbells, like all fitted competition stuff. And, and we grew in, in 
entirely from within and, and we charge, I think, 20 bucks a semester for unlimited lifting. So it's very, very cheap and, and it was actually very, very easy to do. That might, that might have to be our, one of your next uh, presentations, how to start a weightlifting club at oh, your college. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No problem. Um, yeah. So we talked about like uh, being involved in the national conference and kind of kicking that off as like your first experience. Um, I know you've been heavily involved mm. in the NSCA as a volunteer. You're on the conference committee. How did that kind of, um, where did that start and how did that look for you as it's kind of snowballed and you've gotten involved in different committees yeah. and whatnot? Well, ever since I started coming, once I realized probably as a master's student, what it had done for me already, like just getting me to my master's yeah. program, I knew that I owed a lot back to the NSCA. And I wanted to be involved. And so I started volunteering for everything yeah. and I kept getting shut down, <laughs> which, you know, it's good. I hadn't earned it yet. Right. Right. No one knew me, all these things. So I kept applying for everything and all the volunteer things. And I remember, I think actually my first year as a PhD at Fullerton, I applied for like six or seven positions and didn't get any of them. And I was like, man, what do I got to do to get in? <laughs> Eventually got on the conference committee and then just, just worked my way through there. But I actually, when I finished as a doctoral student, I was fortunate and I had job offers from four or five places across the country and all growing up, you know, cause I'm a country guy. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I'll live anywhere but Southern California. <laughs> and the reason in large part, the reason I went is because Lee Brown was there. And I knew if, if I get in with Lee Brown, I, he can get me into the NSCA better. Yeah. And so I, I chose that. Yes. And of course he helped quite a bit. So yeah. Um, yeah, I really, I really believe I know what it did for me. It sounds like it did this for you too. And I can't tell you how many of my students that I've said the same advice to, like just go to the conference right. or people that have anonymously emailed me or you know sent me messages on social media. So I, I just don't see, and I've been, to a lot of different organizations, uh, ones that do it better for this field. So I'm going to always, as long as I can, give back as much as possible. That's cool. Yeah, I was a state director before working at the NSCA, and I know uh, there was me and a couple other state directors who were pretty new. We were on a committee. Um, we got invited to be like a special part of a strategic planning committee. Mm -hmm. Lee Brown was on yeah. a few years ago. Well, it was a long time. It was like six, seven years ago now. But he pulled us aside, just this, like, three brand new state directors, and he's, like, some of the meetings get heated or, you know, yeah. real passionate, but older school, you know, the NSCA people have been involved for a long time, get a little heated, maybe bicker. Yeah. And he pulled us aside and he said, don't listen to these old, old timers. He's like, you guys are going to be the ones leading this organization yeah. and these guys are not going to be around anymore they're going to be retired they're going to be out of this yeah you guys are going to be and, it, and we were just like whoa like he's amazing yeah <laughs> he's amazing when he was the NSA president oh man the comedy from his office <laughs> oh, he's great yeah that's awesome um definitely want to talk about the new book so yeah. um you know, one of my questions I usually ask people is, hey, if you have a book, recommend. And obviously, we're not just shamelessly plugging it, but I did. I'm very uh, shameless. Yeah, happy, you shamelessly plug. Uh, but I did start cracking into it already. It's really good. It's a quick, easy read, yeah. really useful information. I put Unplugged a lot of pictures the in there for the coaches. A lot of yeah. glossy pictures. It helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where? how did that come about? Um, so the book is, is called Unplugged. It's on, you know, Amazon, all that stuff right now. But it's the subtitle is 
evolving from technology to upgrade your fitness, performance, and consciousness. And so that's a, it was a collaboration between myself and my co-author, um, Brian McKenzie. And Brian was very, very uh, disruptive and revolutionary in the endurance running world mm. because he basically took a strength and conditioning approach to endurance running. Crazy. <laughs> and it's like, instead of just going, okay, here's my approach. I'm going to run five miles today, six miles tomorrow, like next week, which is like the every marathon yeah. running program. <laughs> he came in and was like, no, we need to develop a strength base first. And actually his approach is we need to develop a movement skill base first yeah. and then add load and then add speed and then add fatigue. But why jump into a program? And the first thing you do is add a bunch of volume when you don't move well and you're not prepared for it. Yeah. And so him and I have been friends for some time now and we were just talking so much and he actually, he, he called me one day and he was exploding emotionally because one of his athletes, uh, and he's worked with a bunch of Olympians and world champions, was complaining because they were out on a, like a tempo jog and he was like, oh, my heart rate's 166 or something. And he's like, all right, let's pick it up a little bit. And he's like, I can't go to 167, I'll blow up. And he's like, if you're at 166 and you're talking right now, like, <laughs> we, we can go. And so he got really frustrated because he's like, man, these people have just become completely dependent upon a lot of these technologies. So him and I both have very similar opinions um, about how to do. So we decided like there's so much technology in the training and performance field and there's only more coming. Right. We want to do what we can to help people understand how technology can be helpful coaching and how it can cause harm. Yeah. And so it's not an anti-technology book, but it is a, here's a more appropriate use for technology. Yeah. And here are the things if you come, become dependent upon it. Um, and we take it from everything from advanced neuro tracking software all the way down to a mirror or dart fish or coach's eye. Yeah. They can be very helpful, but they can also be problematic if you're outsourcing your own coaching intelligence yeah. Yeah, to yeah. some piece of data. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and you guys talk about in there um, some like benchmarks for longevity, and there was just a kind of a study that came out about that, and mm -hmm. VO2 being like either the main predictor or one of the main predictors, right, yeah. for mortality rates. So, well, in addition, any of the studies that have co that have looked at VO2 max and leg strength in the same time have found that leg strength is also a huge and massively significant predictor of mortality and it's often even more of a predictor than VO2 max. Okay. A couple new studies just came out showing grip strength is also significant as well as lean body mass. So those are like the golden four right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I think in last year's NSA talk, I, brought the, I, I think uh, I brought this up and I'm like, it sounds like an NFL combine, right? Right. <laughs> well, like that's the same thing. Yeah. Whether you're training performance yeah. and your outcome is sport or life, it's really the same thing. So yeah. we really need to take a better approach and uh, just this week, the American Heart Association finally announced they're going to start recommending physicians test people for their cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. This is like, you know, VO2 max. I'm like, great. Next thing we need to do is get a leg press machine in there and right. start right. doing some right. strength testing. Tests, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a twist of the book there as well about like what are sustainable long-term longevity practices and, right. and how technology can rob you of that as well. So, yeah, it, it's really interesting. People just really are sort of... People understand it now. Like people have heard, like yeah. you know, don't don't get up, be on your cell phone so much. Put your cell right, phone away. Right. And people have covered that, like yeah. nauseum. Yeah. But this is very different, and really, it's more of a caution about if you think it's bad now with technology. Yeah, just wait. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. I mean, we I get approached by companies all the time about. I'm not kidding you. There's one out there uh, right now that has a a watch that puts on your wrist that tells you when to drink water. 
like, really? <laughs> like, ah, 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 buzzer off. Oh, time to yeah. drink water. <laughs> like, how, how unattached from your own physiology can you possibly be? How are you yeah. ever going to develop as an athlete when a coach goes, how'd that feel? And you go, oh, I don't know. I got to see what my watch said. Right, right, right. It's going to be very, very, very bad when these things yeah. become cheap. And, and they're every high school athlete's running around with an HRV yeah. telling you, no, coach, I don't work out today. Why? Because right, right. I'm in the tanks today. Yeah, no, it says I'm orange today. I can't train. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, like, we need to have an infrastructure in both our coaching practice and our own personal health that allows us to deal with these things when it becomes very, very, very bad. Yeah. And I think you guys said that in another podcast I listened to, but uh, like I've had that same experience too, right? Like your, whatever your sleep tracker or whatever said that you were not restful. And although I might wake up feeling great, I'm like, wow, I really feel, oh, wait, nope. This says that I'm red, <laughs> right, so maybe exactly. I'm, oh gosh, maybe I'm not as rested as I thought. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that can be helpful. All these things can be good. You know, a, a basic tendo unit or a velocity tracker on a barbell, okay, this can be good, but at what point does it outsource your own coaching intelligence, and how, how do you block your own development as a coach if you can't coach without the technology? Right. right, so, you know, you and I grew up, like, you coached with your eye for the most right. part, and... You know, I stopped only after a few years and you've continued on. Now you've got, what, 20 years of watching people move? Like you don't need uh, an app on your phone to videotape their squat to tell you, oh, they're, this is, like you can see this with your eye, right? But if you grew up in a generation that you start with that app, you're never going to develop that internal app and that's going to be a real problem. What happens when you show up and your phone's broke? Right. You can't right, coach right. today? You can't coach. <laughs> like th- this is a real problem yeah. and we're never going to advance our own internal understanding either, so... It just is, you know, we had a, we were fortunate. We had Tim Ferriss join us in the book as well. And he wrote a couple of chapters at the end and he had a really good way of saying it, that, you know, it's a difference between using it as a task and letting it become a task master master. So don't let it tell you what to do. It is data, but data is not insight. So, um, yeah, that's like I was mentioning earlier. This is one of the reasons why, again, I think coaching, uh, is going to be of extreme value moving forward. We're going through this dip. Yeah. Where it used to be very good, and now it's like, ah, oh, it's unimportant. Everyone wants to be a strength coach. Right. But I think the rise is going to be really high in a few years because of you know, five or ten years. But people are really going to value, like, can you come in and work with me? Right. I'll pay extra. Right, right. Because they're going to have all this data stuff and this Not technology, but they need someone to get them yeah. to interpret it the right way. And yeah. being the guy, you know, again, on the backhand side of a lot of these technology companies, you would be shocked of who's the one writing the algorithms to determine whether you're yellow or you're green. <laughs> they're not exercise people. Right, they're MIT right. grads. Yeah, like, yeah, and they're yeah. just, and they change the algorithms all the time. Yeah. So the same number that was red today might be orange next week. Right. Right. Like, you know, software was, update and all of a sudden the data is different and yeah. your physiology isn't. <clears throat> yeah. That was another thing I think that, um, you guys hit a kind of key point on is the, I guess, validity, right? Mm-hmm. Of some of this stuff isn't very bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, not to call out any companies, um, but any of these watches that measure your heart rate over time or your steps over time, and you can infer anything you want from that. Uh, I was just at ACSM a few weeks ago, and there was probably 40 or more studies on their reliability, and about half of them showed really good, and about half of them showed that they're in the tanks, specifically at higher intensities. Okay. Well, when you're a coach, like, I don't care about your heart rate at 110. Right, right, <laughs> I care right. more about it at 190. Yeah, like that's yeah, where yeah. I need the information. Yeah. So again, they're not useless, yeah. but we have to understand and recognize limitations. And if the data is saying something different and you're going, I've been with this athlete for four years, yeah. 
I don't think so. You're probably right, and it's probably wrong. It's not that smart. Yeah, it's not that. Um, I like to, you guys, so you guys give some, um, I'm just going to give away all the secrets of the book. That's uh, right. But uh, in, in kind of, you give like some uh, benchmarks for mm-hmm. like um, basically kind of unplugging yourself. So yeah. it's like, you know, in different categories, heat, cold, uh, yeah. you know, wearable stuff, your phone usage, social media, which I thought was just kind of cool because it gives people a little bit of a guide like, okay, well, if I could put my phone down um, six days per month where I don't even take it with me right, right anywhere, yep. I thought that was really neat. Yeah. So one of the hard things about any book or any information, uh, and I'm just as bad as everybody here, but standing up and complaining the whole time. It's not helpful. Right. Like we could talk, I could talk to you for three more hours yeah. and Brad get another espresso and we could keep yeah. going about yeah. what technology is bad, but that's not helpful for anybody. Mm-hmm. And that is honestly one of the major mistakes I see from young coaches and young uh, students as well. They want to make their mark by being the person showing everything wrong with something. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how you make your mark. Yeah. Like show up with something better. Show up with a solution. That's how you're going to get famous if that's what you're after. So we made sure um, in the back half of the book that it is, this is our solution and we're done complaining. You understand the problems. Now here are all the solutions. And what we tried to do is put it in like a tier system. Yeah. So for the, if, if the, if this is in Costco and the average mom picks it up, well, they're going to have to start at a different place than a college strength coach. Yeah. And, and so it was sort of like, all right, uh, here's how often we think you should be experimenting with some fasting stuff. And this is one concept. I, I think the coaches will understand. In fact, uh, I heard, um, uh, Phelps's coach, who's going to be here yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Bob Bowman. Yeah. He talked a little bit about this, but he didn't really say it uh, prior to Rio. And he's talking about Phelps's training. And he did, they didn't think they did eight weeks at elevation before going down to Rio. And if you look at the science, quote unquote, on elevation training, it says live high, but train low. Yeah. And the reason is, if you look at the studies, they show that performance goes down if you work out at the higher elevation, right? Oxygen is more difficult to get. And so people might interpret that as saying, oh, okay, but then why is Phelps training at elevation? Oh, he's an idiot. You must not know. Really? Like, <laughs> well, what, what it was is he realized, um, actually, uh, Cal Dietz yeah. said this on our Barbell Shug podcast, and he, same thing. He's like, well, just because I have an athlete show up and they're in the tanks, that doesn't mean they, they take the day off. Just because performance goes down, I have to understand what mesocycle I'm in, what block I'm in. Yeah. If it is a block where I'm trying to change and train adaptation, then I need to push. But if it's a recovery or a peaking one, I back off. Yeah. So we try to lay out a similar approach in, in the book that's saying like, we have to first identify what are we trying to do? And if we're trying to optimize, then maybe we add in all these recovery techniques and all this massage and, and all this uh, nutraceutical uh, ice bath, all this stuff. But if that's not the phase, yeah. we're compromising adaptation. Yeah. So we have to be able to de those things out. And that's, again, something coaches are probably really familiar with, but I don't think the general population is. No, well, for sure. It's having some strategy. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. What, uh, so where did, how, uh, how long of a process was this book? Like when you guys kind of got together and you started yeah. collaborating and you're like, man, we should write a book. Like, yeah. <laughs> I get that question all the time. And like the easy answer is, well, you know, I'm 34 years old, so it's a 34-year process because <laughs> uh, really it's a culmination of, of my entire career. Yeah. But uh, we probably started writing it in uh, November, 
and it's out in July. Wow. Yeah. Which is a very, very fast turnaround. And that only happened for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because that's just kind of how Brian and I work yeah. is when I get like, I just crush. And, and two, we had a guy named Phil White, uh, come on board and Phil is a real smart guy and he's a writer professionally. Okay. And so Brian and I would just hop on conference calls yeah. and just vent and rave and, and go after things for yeah. four hours. And then a week later, 10,000 words would show up. Wow, that's huge. <laughs> because when he first approached me, I was like, this is cool, dude. But like, I, right. no way no time I do this. not yeah. have time for yeah. a book. So I would have probably never written one. Yeah. Um, before and then I actually said no to be honest with you and then they started pulling in some pretty heavy hitters uh, Forrest Griffin was like dude come on do it and yeah. Kelly Starrett was like do it and I was like oh like, it's not that bad like, alright so uh, we had a different strategy and it's funny because when I talk to other coaches and stuff I recommend this all the time like there's some really good writers out there that really understand performance yeah. if you know, Phil White is the guy that did it he just wrote Jim Harbaugh's book too okay. And Fergus Conley's like, oh yeah, you know the. So get one of these dudes, yeah. collaborate with them, and instead of making this a seven-year process, yeah. you'll be done in six months. Nice. I mean, yeah, their name goes on the book too, but right. well, a lot of them don't care. A lot of them will take their name off if that's what you want. Yeah. yeah. But like, come on, like they're gonna just dictate the words for you, and they organize and all this stuff. And and Phil was great. He's like full autonomy. I can change absolutely anything I wanted. So he wasn't trying to control me at all. Yeah. He was trying to help me get my own message yeah. out. And then. Because we did that, when we went to sell the book, we went to all the agents and, and they took it to all the publishers. He was so polished right. that they were like, oh, okay, we had real conversations. And it wasn't just like, you know, for, for example, I didn't realize this prior to the book, but like, you don't sell a book to a publisher by sending them like an abstract. <laughs> right, like, right. No, you write the whole you book first the book. Yeah. and then they decide yeah. whether they buy it or not. And then they change half of it anyway. Yeah. So yeah. like, oh, great idea. No, show me you can do it first. <laughs> And then we'll talk about, you know, yeah. your advance. Yeah. But yeah, so having him on board, it would have never, ever happened without Phil. That's good to know. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah so, I feel like that's super helpful for coaches. To know, I'll probably so, never yeah. write one on my own again. Right. I'll always use Phil or, or yeah. Glenn Cordoza or one of these guys that are very, very good at these things. That's what they do. That's huge. That's yeah. such good info. Um, cool. Well, when you get to my kind of fun slash uh, go-to questions that people <laughs> listening to the podcast have gotten used to. Um, how about any three people, living, dead, or fictional characters that you'd like to have dinner or a conversation with? Uh, I'll start off probably, without a doubt, Henry Rollins. Yes. I, I, I don't like punk music at all. Like, I, don't, I don't probably like a single song he's ever made. Okay. But are you familiar with his um, his essay? I think it's called The Iron. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Awesome. And like, it doesn't even matter if I agree or disagree with his politics and things. Just yeah. the way he thinks, he's insane. He's a, he's yeah. a, he just he's he, his mentality is amazing. So I love that guy. Yeah. Uh, Alton Brown. Okay. Maybe another one from the old TV show Good Eats. Yeah. Uh, I love that because he's a super goofy, sciencey guy, and yeah. he made cooking and nutrition fun. Right. And I remember, and I, I watched every episode, and I remember when the whole gluten is bad for you thing kicked up. Yeah. Like I would, I had a PhD like, and I didn't know what gluten was, but I knew what gluten was because he always talked about it yeah, in cooking. Yeah, yeah. So like I learned he, for me as an educator and a coach and educator to me, it's the same thing, you know, in large part, Absolutely. but he actually found a way to take 
really awesome information because I would have never, ever, ever watched a cooking show. I'm right. not super into right, cooking. Right, right. But I watched it because he's so good at actually saying an interesting message. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, I just taught you how to cook. Yeah. But really, like, I was on there because he was showing how the molecular bond, like, all this stuff. I'm like, oh, now I know how why to cook a potato this way instead of that way. Right. Uh, so he would be another one uh, easily. The third one, probably... Um, Christopher Hitchens is jumping out yeah. just because of his ability to use logic. Yeah. Uh, again, his political or um, religious beliefs aside, they tease yeah. that part out of it. Yeah. Just the way that he could take information and sift through it yeah. was, was uncanny. And yeah. in addition to that, his ability to organize thought was it's just so hard to break down. Um, there's a lot of things he did I did not agree with, right. Right. but from that aspect, he, he's just very sharp. Yeah, I've, I've heard of him seeing this stuff. That's yeah, a good one. Uh, how about if, there, if you had this magic wand where you could eliminate any coaching practice, what would you banish from anyone ever being able to do again? Easy. This is an easiest yeah. one. Easiest question you've asked all day for me. That's the ability to be right. Yeah. Or the thought that you're right. It's just not important. Uh, there's a term or a phrase that, that I've picked up from entrepreneur world or business world that I use tomorrow, but it's what they call a learner versus a knower. Yeah. All right. So a good coach, and I've, I've done this a thousand times. I could give you a hundred examples. Uh, you know, a bad person walks in and says like, I've never seen it done that way. They're an idiot. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. All right. A learner walks in and goes, I've never seen it done that way. I don't think it works like that, but I'm going to ask this person genuinely, man, I wonder why you're doing it. Right. Hey, can you explain to me why you're going this way? And almost always they have a good rationale. Yeah. Uh, I had a very good example coaching one. I'm taking some of my students in to watch. Uh, he was training at a velocity, a coach at a velocity. Right. And and you know the, the quality of those coaches. Right. Sometimes good, right. sometimes not so much. And he had a baseball player on a BOSU ball doing like a one-footed RDL kind of thing yeah. And, yeah. and catching a ball. And I was like, playing my students, I'm like, this is the exact nonsense I'm talking about. This is not strength conditioning. Yeah. You know, I'm going on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, basically, like, I didn't say this. But my message is basically like, watch this. Watch me show how much smarter I am than this guy. <laughs> so when he's done at the athlete, I go over and I'm like, explain to him all the science on force production and yeah. stuff. And he's and I'm like, so why are you doing that? Like ready to show him up in front of my students. Yeah. And he's like, well, this guy has a, I don't remember what the answer was, but he's like, his left QL fires right. action. So we're really working on this motor pattern. And I was like, and as he goes on and on and on, my jaw's like hitting the floor. And I'm like, <laughs> shit. Like, I shit. Like I should have really just, yeah. instead of assuming I knew right. why he was doing it and he didn't know it, right. I should have gone, well, that's not my approach to developing leg strength, yeah. but I wonder why and asked, yeah. and asked a question. So that's easily, yeah. and that's how the, the, the practice moves forward. Yeah. That's a great answer. Such a great answer. Um, how about last one? If you were not currently writing this book being a professor doing all these other things what if we were in a totally different career path what would it be probably high school football coach yeah, yeah. I would imagine it's not maybe that's a cheaty answer because it's a similar yeah career path, similar. but yeah. you know maybe even middle school or peewee like t-ball coach yeah like yeah. I love yeah. that stuff yeah. it's, it's super fun um, I look back I think I would do it I think I'd be a coach that half the parents would hate. Right. Because right. I'm like, it's T ball. We're all going to play all positions. Yeah, like, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm not going to try to 
put the starting pitcher on every time. Like, right, you're all right, going to bat. Right. If you're, you're all playing pee wee play football, you're all going to get a time to carry the ball, and you're yeah. all going to get to play quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like, we know this research wise how important it is for kids to not specialize early. Yeah. And I look back now, and, and I'm like, man, I was a, I was a quarterback when I was 11. <laughs> what? Like, I was a center yeah. fielder. Yeah. Like, no, I was a point guard. Like, no, you were an 11-year-old. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> right. I was fortunate in a community where you, you did everything anyways. Yeah. But that's what I do, man. We'd be playing like, every kid gets to play. Yeah. You know, we're all rotating. And, yeah. You know, it's just like, that's not how you win. Like, I know. <laughs> I don't have to worry about winning. Right I'm not worried yeah. about winning yeah. nine. So that's yeah. probably it. That's great. Uh, how about, we mentioned the book, um, how else can people reach you? Where can they grab the book if they're interested in it after hearing this? So I'm a, I'm a classic, you know, coach here where every business person in the world's like, this is terrible. Don't do it this way. Like, <laughs> but I have my stuff spread out everywhere. It's not very consolidated. Um, so my website is just andygalpin.com. And that's where I post those, you know, uh, all those videos up for free. Uh, the book unplugged, it's unpluggedathlete.com. That's everywhere on uh, Amazon or everything too. I have my own podcast called The Body of Knowledge, uh, which is, it's not like a typical podcast. We kind of write and script the shows. It's just, it was just nine episodes. It's short. That's it. Um, and then, let's see, what am I missing? Oh, my social media stuff is just Dr. Andy Galpin on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Um, DR, Andy Galpin, that's easy to find. And then, uh, yeah, you can catch me co-host and Barbell Shrug podcast from time to time, too, so... Cool. I probably missed some things, but yeah. I'm kind of everywhere. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we appreciate it. Look forward to hearing you speak later today and uh, hanging out with you more at the conference. Thanks, Thanks for being on our podcast. Yep. Always fun, Scott. All right. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.